Hello and welcome to the Get Into Grips With podcast, where I, the host Tom Watson, aims to inspire humans to lead happier, healthier and better connected lives. At Project Get A Grip, we want every human being to continuously grow and prosper as they traverse through the ever-changing terrain of life and strive to build the best versions of themselves. By delving into the journeys and lives of others, these in-depth conversations seek to inspire you to question your beliefs, overcome fears and take positive action to better connect mentally, physically, emotionally and spiritually and ultimately live a purpose-driven life in which you can flourish and thrive. An array of inspirational guests from a variety of respective fields are invited on the show, ranging from sporting personalities, entrepreneurs, business icons, public figures, big thinkers and everyone in between. For episode 16, I'm joined by Nathan Arnold. Naif is a former professional football player, having previously played for the likes of Grimsby Town, Cambridge United and Lincoln City. He was part of the team that not only won the National League, but also became the first non-league team for over 100 years to reach the quarterfinals of the FA Cup in the 2016-2017 season. But rest assured, there is far more depth to this journey than just football. He is also the founder of Nathan Arnold Coaching, which mission is to make people feel seen and heard and pursue a life lived forwards but understood backwards. We cover so much in this extended episode from transitioning out of professional football, visualisation, grief, loss, leaning with the heart and living your true purpose. Let's get into it. Okay, I got my my green tea. I like it. I have rubbers. Sunday Zen vibes. Yeah, have you have you tried Rubos? No, what's that? Rubos, it's a it's a Chilean uh, tea, but it's it's decaf, so yeah, it hasn't got that caffeine in it, uh, which which is good. You should try it. You know, what? I went through a period of about a month where I was on decaf coffee, mm. and I've kind of been the sort of person that I never really felt a buzz off a of coffee, but I was having issues and health issues with my thyroid, and I thought about just like desensitizing my body a bit. And I felt like it did help, but now I'm back yeah. on two cups a day. Yeah. Uh, and I yeah. can't quite work out if it's good for me or not on the whole decaf thing. Like, what, what's your sort of go-to? Yeah, well, well the, the thing is with me, it was like playing football. I used to hammer the energy drinks when I was younger. That's all they used Lucas to say. Aids. Yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. the sachets and everything. And as coaches back then, obviously, there's a lot of science involved now. So the older I got and grew through my career, I started to um, – to really do my research and look into the nutrition side of things. And when I was younger, I mean, talking from like 12 years old onwards, you know, I'd have these energy drinks and it wasn't, didn't have an effect on me when I was younger, but what I noticed is I started to get heart palpitations and I had these side effects and started getting really bad headaches. So obviously I didn't really unpack it too much. I was just like, you know, thought, oh, that's just, that's just something that's, you know, happening to me growing up you know with the hormones and everything and I can remember then turning professional and I went away with uh, England Sea to uh, to Bosnia but we actually stopped off in Austria on the way and the guys left all the kit out and in your in your hotel room you had this tub of Lucozade and I can remember taking the Lucozade and I was up all night I couldn't sleep I was restless and that was the point when I knew it was an energy drink or 
the the powder you know the lucasade powder what was affecting my sleep and everything so i just moved away from everything with caffeine in and just went decaf yeah so and i and i stopped having the symptoms so it's quite interesting yeah a lot of there's a big culture particularly in the with the gym gym guys and i'm sure gym gals with the pre-workout stuff i never really got into the pre-workout sort of lucasade before a session It's, it's more of a coffee thing for me Mm. And, and and that's it it's preference and everyone's different you know the guy sat next to me uh for, for two years in the dressing room you know he had two red bulls before going out mm. um and we it was interesting because we used to have to fill in these wellness profiles so every every time we uh came to training it was it i mean at lincoln city it was all done like science behind it all the all the you know top top guys in and um, basically you have to fill in on the laptop how much sleep you had the quality of sleep everything was sort of going into detail and this guy who used to have two cans of red bull before a game if you look at his stats on video analysis he was like up there with probably the top five of distances you know ran during the game but then what happened was he said he'd get home and he'd just crash and he'd go to sleep and bed early about eight nine o'clock he could sleep for 13 hours and he wouldn't wake up till you know 10 o'clock sunday morning sometimes and he was saying how like this fluctuation you know just like this spike with the energy drinks getting him through a game but then the repercussions from that he used to just crash and like, i've always tried to stay. yeah mm-hmm. and i always used to stay away from it because i thought you know it's not for everybody it certainly wasn't for me but if that got him through a game then then so be it but yeah i never fortunately i never used i never needed something like that external to you know stimulate me so what did stimulate you back in the day before a football match? Was there anything that got you fired up? Uh, what, professionally or just growing up as a kid? Just just professionally on the field, like before a big game. You've yeah. got your guy there with the two Red Bulls. What, what was your go-to? How did you get fired up? Yeah, visualisation. Yeah? Yeah, visualisation. Uh just Just used to visualise. I know I told a story um recently to somebody when they was asking me about my experiences at Wembley and I used to always visualize and and I can remember the week leading up to Wembley you know the cup final yeah I'd probably played out that game about six times that week leading into the game and no word of lie when we started to walk out the tunnel you know see the arch and you see all the fans to your left 15,000 I felt exhausted and the reason why I felt exhausted is because for six days leading up to the final, I'd already replayed the game over in my head, five or six different scenarios of how it's going to play out. And I felt physically drained. Um, but, but visualization was so important to me. And it wasn't something I'm sure I'll move into it a little bit later, but it was something that I fell into naturally um, through private prayer of practice that I used to. Uh, that I used to do I'm not a religious person but just added that visualization to to training and to to football uh, really helped me and that sort of got me in the zone so once I crossed the white line I had a mantra that I used and I used to say a few words and I used to visualize myself um, doing little bits during the game so okay I don't know if you've heard about how the subconscious mind don't know what's real or imagined so if you take yourself there in the mind before it's, that event's played out, once it comes to that event, your your mind don't know whether your brain don't know whether it's real or imagined. So 
it helps you be more composed in that moment because your brain thinks, oh, I've lived it already. Um, so whenever I used to go into games, I used to try and create as many scenarios. And of course, there's thousands, isn't there, during a game? Because in just, football, the variables, I, I can, in my head, um, you know, like an F1 driver, they do a lot of visualization, but they're in control and there's very little external variables. Obviously, they've got the track and the other drivers. Yeah. But the visualization on a team sports game must be quite different to an F1 driver memorizing a track, for example. Yeah, definitely. Um, but one, one thing that I could do is, and one thing that I always did was look at the goal and the nets, obviously, as an attacking player. So I'd always look at uh, the, the boardings behind the goal. And what I'd do was I'd visualize that boarding I'd, and I'd take snapshots in my mind. So when I went back to the dressing room, I'd do some visualization. And so whenever I got the ball, and it might, I might have one chance or I might have 10, depending on how the game's gone. But I always used to try and hit that boarding because I know that if I hit that boarding, it's on target, I've got a chance of scoring. So it was just little things like that. Um, trying to get an edge and a slight tactical advantage all the time. Yeah, so, so going back to it, I never really look for the any drinks and stuff like that. I try to find intrinsic motivations um, and, and trying to develop tools that I could implement, you know, taking it into football. What I find really interesting there is how you actually looked beyond the goal as your goal. That's, that's quite interesting. There's probably quite a lot of metaphors there. And, yeah, uh, but I've, not, really I've, I've, never see, I've never seen it like that, but yeah. That's quite cool. Um, and having done my uh, research on you, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you scored the injury time winner when you're at Lincoln against Ipswich Town in yep. the 2016-2017, was there some visualisation there? What did that feel like? You must have been under some pressure there. Like, just talk us through that that winning goal when the when the stakes were so high. Yeah. So we went to Portman Road for the first first game, and um, I can remember it was probably the first time. I know I'd played at Wembley the year before, but it was the first time I'd really gone to an old-fashioned English ground, you know, um, that was quite iconic, you know, quite, had a lot of history to it. I can remember walking out of Portman Road and um, really buzzing. I can remember going out for the warm-up and then there was just like 5,000 just filled out the, the away stand. And um, it was a special moment. I can remember actually coming off the pitch at Portman Road, drawing 2-2. And at the time, Ipswich was a championship team and we was a non-league team. So we wasn't expecting to get anything. And um, I can remember the lads being really disappointed because we conceded, I think, five minutes before the end, we conceded a goal. And, um, you know, we, we came in disappointed because we actually we, we took the lead twice in that game. And then it, we, we, we got them back to Sinsel Bank. And I can remember was just really tactically well drilled. And how I can describe that that time at Lincoln is like it took a while to get going, but then we was like a well-oiled machine. Like it, it just became like second nature. We was familiar with with each other. You know, the, the team was pretty consistent. And so whenever we we went out uh, and played our opposition during the FA Cup first and foremost we were solid and tactical and i can remember they found it really hard to break us down we had 10,000 packed central banks so it was a really good atmosphere and i can remember about the the, the 70th minute mark and um of course you're running on adrenaline you know you're playing a championship team and there's so much riding on it just before the game there's um 
there's banners and everything because it was the Graham Taylor um, tribute to him. And it just was a special, special day. And I can remember thinking after about 70 minutes, you know, gosh, we're getting closer to the end. And you can almost think, feel like, you know, there's probably going to be one goal that's going to win this game. It's very tight. And, um, and of course, you start cramping up and your body starts to fatigue. And so the moment I score the goal, just before that, um, our right back, Bradley Wood, fouls one of their players, one of their best players, Tom Lawrence, who's now at Derby. And um, he stood over the free kick and I thought, gosh, he's got loads of quality, you know, let's just see this out and then go to extra time and regroup. And I can remember probably for the first time in 180 minutes for the two ties, he'd, uh, he'd made a mistake and he under it the free kick and it actually hit our guy at the front of the wall. And I can remember he headed it towards the halfway line and normally they get you get a second wave. So normally it's the opposition player that picks it up and then you have to get your tin arm and defend another attack. But we brought a, a, a guy called Adam Marriott on the pitch 10 minutes before who was fresh and he managed to win the race to the ball. And, um, and then I thought he's really good at manipulating the ball and looking after and protecting it. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, if this is the last attack, I'm just going to, you know, go for it. And it's quite funny looking back at the video because you actually see the referee puts the burners on and he's in front of me for about a good 10, 15 yards on that break. And then um, I can remember just finding some energy. I had the roar of the crowd and it is just pure adrenaline in that moment. And I just thought I'd get my head down and run and he picked out the perfect pass, threaded it through, stayed on side. And then people always say, pause there, like talk me through what's going through your mind, you know, when you're in front of that goalkeeper in front of 10,000 in the 91st minute. And all I can really say to people is that it's just hours and hours of practice. You know, it's become second nature throughout my career. Sorry, just plug my um, charger in. So throughout my career, um, it just becomes second nature, all the training that you do. And um, I always say to people, if that was three, four years earlier, prior to that, I probably would have, would have missed. But because of my experiences, it, it um, led to me keeping a cool head in that moment and composed. And then rounding the keeper, slowing it in. And um, yeah, it's just like time stood still. It was like slow motion. That last, whenever I look back at that video, because of course, in lockdown, there's a lot of clubs putting out memories you know um and obviously you've got this time two years ago this time four years ago and these goals are like coming back onto my news feed Speaking and the goals the belter you scored oh you put up in your feed was it that volley that was a belter different game the one uh, where you checked it, volleyed, it was on your feed uh, yeah that, that was grimsby so that was the season before yeah um and yeah so so you know it, it's in that moment, and, and, and any athlete, sportsman would tell you that, like, just hours and hours of training, just preparing yourself for that moment. You know, I love that saying where it's better to be, it's better to be prepared and not have an opportunity than have an opportunity and not be prepared. You know, so it's not like that in that moment, it was, um, I, I wasn't prepared for that opportunity because I've done it, you know, hours and hours in training. What you've been training for, it's your it's mastery you, that you were seeking. Yeah. And I was kind of a player, Tom, and I, and I, um, and I don't mind saying this. I, I, I'm quite honest. And I, I've always been 
critical of my own performance, trying to improve all the time. But I always just say to people, I'm a player that that goes off instinct as well. You know, if you look at Teddy Sheringham of the world, these intelligent players back in the day, they could have their time to think and then still be able to uh, have the finished article, you know, like finish, um, you know, they, they could um, take their time, think what they're going to do and then, and then, um, and then find the finish with me. I was more off the cuff instinctive. And if you look at that moment there against Ipswich around the keeper, it was just pure instinct. I seen him coming out, chopped it and, and, um, and put it in the net where if I had too much time to think about it, I probably would have tried slotting it, you know, and he probably would have saved it with his legs. So, yeah, just pure instinct as well. Well, it's like, I think in any arena, professional sports, um, I like the approach of you're just professional problem solvers. Football is like solving problems. You've got someone trying to tackle you. You've got a keeper coming to you. You've been in those positions before and your brain's going a million mile an hour and you're just trying to solve a problem, aren't you? Yeah, and go back to the pressure, you know. Um, you got 10,000 people, you know. I look at the lower league and, and, and when it would have been great, honestly, you know, to, to have had the opportunity to play two, three, four seasons, you know, at the really top level, just to say I did it. Um, but what it, what it allowed me to do playing in the non-leagues, lower leagues, League Two and Conference, is that you get to have relationships with people, you know, people that are in the town, in the cities. Um, you're almost looking for a glass window at the, at the, you know, the players at the top, the world-class players. Um, but one thing that I loved about it is that I had a, a responsibility and the opportunity. You know, I love that saying where one, man year, one man's year of work can be a lifetime of memories for a supporter. So for me, I, I never got into the 20 plus figure mark when it comes to goals a season, but I was very fortunate to score some iconic goals. And for me, that allows me to have still a really good connection with supporters because players come and go, you're an asset. Um, but how can you be remembered? And I think when I look back, okay, I didn't play in the premier league. I didn't play in the championship. You know, the highest I played was league two, but, I'm, I could take a lot of fulfillment from my career because of the moments that I had, special moments, but the real relationships that I had with people as well. You know, in that moment, 10,000 people all willing me, sucking the ball in, and I've got an opportunity to accumulate some money for the football club that maybe is going to raise the, you know, the cook's wages and the cleaner's wages. You know, it, it, the, the responsibility that you have as a footballer as the opportunity so when it comes to pressure it's not really a negative it's such a like inspirational you know thing because you've got that responsibility you carry that and i never shortchange the game and that's the reason why because there's too much on the line it's not about me i come and go you know two three years down the line i'm no longer there but what legacy what mark what imprint could i leave on that football club and so i couldn't just do if the coach says do 10 press-ups, I couldn't do eight. I couldn't uh, cut corners. I couldn't shortchange my potential and my ability and give my all. So that, when it comes to pressure, I removed because I know that I left no stone unturned. And I don't speak for everybody, 
I had teammates that did cut corners. And I used to say to them, you know, <laughs> because you are, the spotlight is going to be on you and you're going to have a moment, whether that's it during, during a game, somewhere along the line in your career, you're going to have a moment and you need to be prepared for that moment. And fortunately for me, I always had that mindset. So then when it comes to the playoffs, you know, if you look back at the, some of the goals that I scored was late on, was important goals in playoff finals or playoff semifinals. And I think the way that I prepared and the way that I um, didn't shortchange my training or anything like that, I think that, uh, well, they say you reap what you sow and, and that I'm, a, I'm a true believer of that. I love the saying, how you do anything is how you do everything. Yeah. Uh, exactly that so big true. things from turning up to training days to um you know when you're wiping a surface down do you wipe behind the do you wipe behind the kettle or do you pick it up and do it underneath it's how how you do everything it's what sort of exactly person are that. you yeah so, i love that saying as well how do you so that's a very mature approach and i think from what I can imagine, there's very few that share that outlook, particularly in football and team sports. I can imagine there's a lot of egos involved. Um, did you feel there was major clashes with certain personalities? Do you think there's a lot of people that are just looking out for themselves? Obviously, without naming any names. What is the kind of team dynamic? Like people are only out for themselves and you've got that mindset can it get ugly in the dressing room? Can it, can it hold you back as a team? I, I saw, I've been watching um, the amazing Michael Jordan drop documentary on Netflix. Have you been watching that? It's on there. Um, I've so seen it. Yeah, I've, see, I've seen it. Same sort of thing. One person in the team, if they're letting everyone down, like how can that affect the team dynamic? Yeah. And, you know, there's a term, you become a product of your environment. And so how could I possess my own beliefs and get strong enough to possess my own beliefs that the environment won't change me, but I can change the environment. So for 27 years, 26 years of my life, I was a product of my environment. I was drifting by and being influenced by everyone around me. But I, at a point in time in my life, was thinking, right, okay, what do I want to do? And give myself permission to do what I want to do. I talk a lot about when I'm on the bus, going to away games, lads playing poker and cards in the back of the bus. And I'm at the front journaling. I'm at the front reading books. You know, I'm paving the way for other footballers to do the same, giving them permission to say, look, you ain't got to be a lad all the time. You haven't got to just put on this persona. You haven't got to just wear the mask just to fit in. And of course, I got foreign looks off my teammates. But when ever I've scored the winning goal when I've come off the pitch and they're, you know, you're the hero. What can they say? So I started to, um, I started to earn the right and earn that respect off my peers, off my teammates, because everybody prepared differently. And, and it's not about being a follower. It's about being true to who you are. And that took me a while to grasp. That took me a while, a lot of work on myself. When I was 24 years old, talk about it, um, practice, practice of prayer life. Like I've never stepped foot in a church. I'm not a religious person, but an incident happened at 24. So what happened was I went out into a nightclub and there was an incident. Fight broke out. I'm speaking, having a chat with my friend. A guy jumps down off the side, pushes this guy into the bar. The guy turns around, 
goes to glass this guy and it slips out his hand. I'm stood directly in line with this dude. And next thing I know, I black out and I'm on my way to the hospital. And as I arrive to the hospital, I'm stood before a specialist and the specialist is there to patch me up. And as he's stitching me up, he says, if this was two inches lower, you would have been blind for the rest of your life. Wow. But pri prior to this event, Tom, I'm in my room and I'm on my knees praying, um, but I'm praying selfish prayers. It's personal gain. It's secondary gain. It's what can Nathan get out of this? I'm praying I want to be a professional footballer. I want to be a successful professional. Footballer. I want to play in the Premier League. I'll do anything it takes. But then my actions on the weekend was going out drinking and partying with my friends. So I always say the God of my understanding through the practices that I've done in private, developing myself spiritually, going on personal development journey. Like I always say, God places you in the most isolated positions ever to get your attention. So for me, when I get hit over the head and I've got a hole in my head and I have stitches in my, in my forehead, and the specialist tells me that at, at first, of course, when I process it, I'm angry. I'm annoyed. You know, I want to go and find the guy. I want to go and sue him. I want to, you know, get the police involved. But it wasn't looking back in hindsight that I was like, wow, God was basically saying to me. And whatever's on the door for people, but that God of my understanding was saying to me, Nath, your words ain't matching up with your actions. And you're not taking responsibility. You want to be a professional footballer, but your actions are complete. I'm going in the completely opposite direction. So I, I don't put it down to coincidences. So that was the very first realization. That was the very first understanding of me getting to know myself on a deeper level. And then it just starts to build. I start to develop myself. So when it comes to 27 and I can give myself permission to be my true authentic self, it's because I've dated me. I understand me. And I know that by being a follower and trying to fit in ain't going to get me to where I want to be. And there was another incident. Imagine this. Okay. And I can understand why my own teammates thought I was weird. <laughs> so check this. Played at Wembley. Um, the year before, we lose on penalties. My first season at Grimsby one penalty kick away from football league following season do the same thing get to the playoff final Wembley this time we win around the keeper score a euphoria chairman comes into the dressing room after the game says through a curveball and says lads we're going to go to Milton Keynes we're like Milton Keynes like we want to go back to Cleethorpes and have a you know an all-night party celebration the chairman takes us to Milton Keynes we pull up, we go to our rooms, we come straight back down, meet in, the, um, in, in, in one of the um, function rooms, all the bars free, you know, um, loads of food. And I'm bored, to be honest, just won the player final. And I'm bored. I'm sat there. They're playing a game in the reception area back of the game that we've just played on BT Sport. I'm sat there analyzing my own performance. I'm sat there looking and I've got people flicking my ear, banter, all of that. Nafe, let it go. Put the ball away. Come and have a pint. Manager comes up to me. He tries pulling me off the chair. He's like, come on, get in here. Forget football. Trying to switch it off with the remote. But 
I knew that I was I wasn't finished. I'm 27, 28. I've still got more to achieve. I want more to achieve. The following week, we're back at Wembley in the FA Trophy final. I want to make the team. I want to win another trophy. So for me, it's not about it's it's not about I couldn't find balance and play. Of course I could, but I had such a commitment to this. And I know I've not touched on my my childhood growing up, but I wanted to pull my mum and nan out of certain situations. You know, we had it rough growing up. So for me, they didn't know my story. They didn't know my journey. And I was just a little bit different. And because of that, yeah, I got foreign looks off my teammates. But it wasn't until I started to um, be myself. A few years later, people was like, oh, I get it. You know, I had one of the lads who gave me a foreign look, actually, that season. After the playoff, uh, after the, the trophy final a week later, we go back to Cleethorpes. We have a we have a party, have a few drinks. Then I let my hair down because that's the last game of the season. And the guy comes up to me, gets me in the headlock, and he was like, I commend you. And I said, wow, like from this guy, coming from this guy who's a proper lad, you know, that's something. And he said, no, I commend you because he says, like, you're ballsy. And he says, then you deliver. And I think, you know, that's the biggest thing that when I delivered, you know, it, when I was going out, and I was scoring the winning goal and I delivered and I showed up. I think then that's when you get the respect of the players because everybody prepares differently. And the old school, get on the back of the bus, have a laugh, get loads of crates of beer, beer lad, you know, all of that stuff. I wanted to change that perception of footballers and I wanted to pave the way for any young lad who was on that coach, probably gaining experience, coming, traveling with the first team to say, look, you know, you can be yourself. It doesn't matter who you are. And I think that was the most important thing for me is to try and not get sucked in to that kind of environment. And, um, and you know, and, and, and I love football and, and I love that. And, and I always say, you know, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. That's just always how I prepared and my mindset. And I think it was because I had something bigger than myself attached to it. Like I said, pulling my mum and nan out of certain situations. It was really rough growing up. Matt, I really enjoyed that. Thank you for sharing. Um, I just want to like flip it back to sort of where it all began. And I noticed on your um, website, you, you said a, a local neighbor sort of picked up on your talent and offered himself to take you to training and got you into the football. He sort of saw this, his passion and believed in you. Is, is that where it all began? Like, it's an amazing journey that you got up to that point. And I just kind of want to strip it back and just see. Yeah, what, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I came up in a in a two bed council house. It was me, my mum, and my sister. My father was absent. I didn't go on to meet my father till I was twenty years old. My nan worked two jobs to provide meals on the table for me and my sister. My mum was depressed. My mum was on welfare, so she stayed at home a lot. Um, and you know, it was really it was a really rough course where that I was assigned to from a young age. The cat, the electricity used to cut off. The candles came on. Like my mum used to send me out when I was like. I can't remember my earliest memories, but I was only young. And she used to, I always used to take these notes, these notes that she'd give me over to the road. And I'd come back with like bread, milk, sugar, you know, and, and little did I know, obviously, when I'm young, uh, that she, she didn't have any money. You know, we, we struggled. And I thought everybody lived like that until I went over the road and I got invited to my friend's birthday party one day. And I was coming back, running home, thinking, Mom, like, you ought to see the amount of food they had. You ought to see this big, like, 
40 inch television that they had you know back at home in, in my house we used to have to put a pound coin back then into the tv just to just to uh get get television you know and uh, and then a guy would come every like fortnight or something and empty the box and that's how we was living so i thought everybody lived like that until i had that experience and then um so when i when i was growing up my mum was in some rough relationships you know uh, my oldest memory was four years old and because she was in abusive relationships, because I was exposed to domestic violence and I'm, only ma- I'm the only male in the family, of course, I was. I always had that burning desire to get my mum and nan out of certain situations. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I was around eight years old, nine years old, and I was playing tackle football. Like with my friends, we'd get all turfed up, you know, like when you scrape your legs and you've got scabs on your knees and, and all of that. I never played organized sport. I just fell in love with football. Wherever you could see, you know, wherever you see me, there was always a ball attached to me. And I can remember one day um, that the light started to come on, um, the street lamps. And normally when the street lamps come on, that's my cue to go in and um, as it was mine back in the day (laughs) yeah and uh and the street lights come on and i'm knocking a ball against the wall like i did religiously and what i used to do is i used to and talking about visualization i was doing it at that that age then because what i used to do i used to create a game where whatever window i could see on the street whether that would be a parked car or a house I used to imagine Sir Alex Ferguson, like the just these top managers at the time, scouts watching me. So I don't know why I made that game up, where it came from, but that instinctively happened. And so on this particular night, the, the street lamps come on, I'm knocking a ball against the wall and this car's coming up the street and the closer it gets to me, the slower it, it's going. And so I'm getting a little bit weary I look over my left shoulder on this environment, there's drug dealers. I look over my right shoulder, there's people robbing each other, people in that prison. So you can imagine what kind of environment I'm growing up in. So when this car's pulling up beside me, I'm thinking the worst. Anyway, back then, Ford Mondeo is winding the window down. And as he winds the window down, I hear a guy and he says, hello, what's your name? And of course, my mum said, you know, be wary of strangers, all that kind of thing. So you can imagine like I'm, I'm on the back foot. Don't take candy from strangers. Yeah, exactly. Little did I know that this guy worked in the communities on his way home from a shift. And I said to him, Nathan, he said, do you like to play football? And I said, I love to play football. He said, well, can you go in and get your guardian for me? So I go in and my mum my and nan at the time we stood there and I said, a, a guy wants to, you know, wants, wants you outside. I think he might have something for me when it comes to football. And that's the kind of message I was getting. So I thought when I go back out, he's going to have drove off. It's just nothing. And I see him, the reflection of his headlights still on the wall. I heard the engine running. My mum my and nan made the way out. And he said, if he, he said, I see that your son is playing football every night. I drive past here to go to go, to go home from work. I see him, whether it's rain or shine, always playing football. I would like to invite him to organise sport. And before he could finish, my mum turned around and she said, I'm sorry, we've got no money, can't afford it. We don't drive, but thank you. It's a great gesture. And as she started to walk off, the man said, no, 
if you bring him here this time next week, not only will I take him to football, I will pay for his cost as well. And that was the very first time that I got introduced to organised sport. And that's really where it kick-started me into football. And that was the real first time that I could look at an opportunity to be able to make my dream a reality, you know, wanting to get my mum and nan out of situations. I seen football as a vehicle to be able to do that for me. So for me, I just committed myself. I was all in whatever it took. I was training like you wouldn't believe. I was dedicating myself, sacrificing, committing myself because I had two choices. I could either be a product of my environment and just hang around with the wrong crowd and drift off and just, I don't know where I'd end up in life or I could commit myself and dedicate myself with this opportunity that this man came and give me out of the blue to be able to better my family's life. And that was always my driving force. So yeah, I hope that's answered uh, the question when I got started. How, how did it make you feel when you got to a point in your career where you could perhaps support your family, your mom, like did, was there a lot of reflection of, you know, you kind of can give back now, you kind of achieved what you wanted to, you know, when the money started coming in and the sort of standard you reached, was that enough or did you, was there still, I got to play for Man United, I got to be the top biller. How did you sort of feel when you started getting, gaining success from football? I think, it, yeah, good question. Because I think what happened was I had so many uh, times growing up when you go to an academy. So off the back of meeting that guy, I spent the next 11 years at Mansfield Town. I got in, um, to, I got through the trials, I got in to play for Mansfield Town. And then every year you get assessed. So I got assessed and I scraped through every year. But I was always really small. And so when my mum's in some rough relationships, and uh, you've probably heard similar stories all the time about this, but I started to train and try and book myself up because I didn't want another man to lay his hands on my mother. So for me, I started building myself up for, for them reasons rather than sport. So when it comes to sport, I'd already built the mindset, but my body wasn't as advanced and, you know, as my mind was. So, uh, of course, I scraped through every year and I can remember getting to a point where I'd made my first team debut and I signed my first contract. It was like £45 a week. And I just knew that, again, this was just, a stepping stone this was just I wasn't finished and go back to the time when I score at Wembley it wasn't enough for me because I I, I knew I knew when I got to that point when I I could look back and reflect and say I'm done and that's and and of course when I got the opportunity to become a professional footballer that was just the start of my journey and I wanted to make sure that I never lost those core values you know my mum and nan instilled some good in me you know, we had very, very little in terms of finances, but the togetherness that we had and the resilience that was built from that, you know, I wanted to carry that through. So I don't think I ever got satisfied. But what happened was when I was about 20, 21, I started to go out, obviously, with with friends and I've, I've made it to the first team now. So being influenced by my teammates. And then it kind of fits in with what I was saying later on in life, not giving myself permission until I was 27. So I was, I was there floating about being influenced, being a product of my environment and started to enjoy myself. Um, and luckily for me, 
I was never a big drinker and I was never a big party goer. So I could always keep that close, my upbringing, and I never stray too far away from, from the right path for me, even though there's many temptations. So I'm very fortunate in that, despite not knowing my dad till I was 20 and not having that male figure to guide me and to learn from their mistakes. You know, my mom always used to say, you know, um, learn from other people's mistakes you can't make them all yourself so a part of me was making those mistakes where my mother couldn't see them you know um but i go back to it when i was eight years old i can remember going to school my earliest memory i was going to school and uh, i stood there with my rucksack in the doorway and i can always remember my teacher transferring me from one class to the other Little did I know that she's taken me from my normal class into special education where there was five other mentally ill children. So as I arrive in this classroom with five other mentally ill children, I can remember making stories up about myself like any eight-year-old would. And I started to think, gosh, like there's something wrong with me, you know? And um, so what, what effect that had by her saying that it defined the next five years of my school life. Because what I do is go out onto the playground and I try and fit in with a group of people on one side of the playground, sag my pants, try and look like them, try and be cool, go onto the other side of the playground, try and fit in there. And then I'd go home and I'd be a completely different person, well-mannered around the dinner table with my family. And I spread myself that thin and created so many different identities that I didn't know who I was. So when it comes to football later on, again, this lack and limitation mindset getting washed up with my teammates in the environment. You can imagine from 18 to 22, even though I've got this steady mindset, it's still very hard because the temptations are there. You know, the, the nightclubs, the drinking, mm. the girls, all of that stuff. And I'm only human at the end of the day. So yeah, I got a little bit carried away in terms of, you know, I made it and, and all of that. But fortunately for me, like I say, when I got to 24, had this realization with this, you know, it's prayer life that I began. It's, it's good in ways that you realize that, at, you know, relative, what, what is quite a young age, 24. Some people don't even ever realize that until they're 44, 54 or at all. Um, and I really connected with what you said about the, your sort of childhood and the, and the father figure uh, I had similar kind of identity crisis with my father figure and I never really addressed it until I was in my twenties and it just manifested its way in such different forms yeah. and physically. Yeah. And I just thought, um, you know, play by the normal man rule book of just, well, if I just work out more, um, I'll That's get stronger. Um, but actually it was a, I just, it was a complete wrong approach and, I had to get down to the to the roots, to the weeds. Um, my good friend Lou Campbell always says, so many people are just putting weed killer and everything. You've got to get into the roots. And Love um, yeah. I'm certainly, you know, uh, I wrote a blog post actually this weekend and um, I, I certainly haven't got all the roots out, but the garden's in blossom. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm fortunate that I, you know, I address a lot of those things. I think there's this identity crisis and there seems to be a lot of issues with men and their father figures and their mentors. And yeah. I think there's a lot of guys out there struggling in silence. You know, I'm a big men's mental health campaigner and part of the, in that community. Uh, I've got yeah. a talk club set up where we create 
safe spaces for men. And I just want to hear your views on, awesome. you know, what, what it means to be a man today, you know, like, I just feel that people, men have just lost their kind of taking ownership of their problems. They just feel like they need, there's this great expectation on them. Um, you know, what to you, what does it mean to be a man? Yeah, uh, interesting. I probably will try and answer that question as we go. Um, but one thing I do with the, the work that I do now is we do a post-mortem like of your past so I always take people back so how I've just unraveled my story right from birth growing up from zero to seven is the hypnosis stage and what happens is that you're reading the environment through your five sensory receptors you know sight sound touch taste and smell so whatever you're experiencing to exposed to mind uh, domestic violence I'm looking at how men are treating my mother so what standard or what expectation do I have as a man and so not having that father figure, like you said, your father was absent as well. I always look and think, gosh, like I always look at guys now and I think, you know, it is just a behavior. It's, you know, um, so when we unpack it and go back, there could be something deep rooted, like you say, with the roots that needs pulling out. So it's very hard for me to ever in this line of work be judgmental you know, try and, uh, I always try and understand the person. I understand that something's triggered them or they're well, they're wired, hardwired a certain way and they're running off patterns of behavior due to their past. Um, so I always come with empathy and, um, what does it mean to, to be a man these days? Well, it, it's like the same thing what I applied in football. I try and apply to, to my own life now and everybody I cross paths with in terms of, giving yourself permission. Ultimately, that's the biggest thing, you know, giving yourself permission, <clears throat> but also getting to know yourself, understanding who you are. And one thing that I will say that people do is that it's so easy to get behind the next person in line and just go and follow suit and wait for the other person to come out and say something before you do. And again, it's breaking down those barriers and breaking down that perception of what a man looks like. And I get it, you know, certain environments are very difficult. And if you've shown a little bit of sign of weakness, then, you know, then then maybe you feel like you, you, you're gonna lose your job or you can't work there no more, the pressure's too much, or you're gonna crack mentally, you know, so there's all that stuff. And, but ultimately it comes down to like working diligently on getting to know yourself. And, and some people don't know where to start. Some people lock it away in a box and don't even want to revisit their past. But ultimately, you know, they always say the only way out is through. You can't go over it. You can't go around it. The only way out is through the middle. And even though it's the most challenging and uncomfortable process, that's the only way you're going to come out the other side, understanding who you are so you can get on with the rest of your life. And I see a lot of men today. And to be fair, if we're talking 10, 15 years ago, a lot of that was locked away in a box. Don't speak about it. And the beautiful thing that I'm seeing is that there's more and more men being vulnerable, stepping into their feminine, you know, not trying to be macho and actually moving into that space where they can have a voice, where they can speak about things. So there is a shift happening, even though it's only a slow one. Um, but yeah, really, really interesting. And I think there's some stats, I'm not quite sure, but studies suggest that boys and not having a father around 
how much that can impact because going back to football, all I ever wanted was that pat on the back and say, well done, son. And I got it from my mum and nan. So as much as I appreciate getting it off my mum and nan, there's just something there with a, with a son and his father. And, uh, and that affected me massively with not only my relationships, but also my friendships. I used to push people away, keep them at arm's length. Never got too close to people because I was let down. My father came into my life when I was about 13. I was ice skating with my cousins and I get back. And during that time when I'm out ice skating, my father had been and gone. And he said to my mum, I'm going to come and pick him up at the weekend. I went in, scrapped Saturday football off because I was waiting for my dad to come meeting him for the first time. I went upstairs, got my rucksack, packed a few things, sat on the curb outside all day. Mum had to come and grab me, say, like, son, he's not coming. And imagine 14, 15, 16, what that did psychologically to me. I started to become bitter and I started to um, be very, um, very much guarded when it comes to having a relationship with guys. I was surrounded by women, me, my mum and my sister. Not a problem getting on with women, but this thing with guys is very hard. So uh, I had to work through my traumas. I had to work through my deep rooted issues when it comes to what, what a guy looks like and 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 then be that living example of what a guy should look like you know and, and stepping into fatherhood something that i constantly am aware of and mindful of that i need to break that cycle and come away from that mold and try and be the best version i know it sounds a bit soppy but trying to be that best version of me and and, and what a real man looks like because i think people always like you say lift the weights be in the gym you know gotta look good and and that's what a real man looks like and i and i question that a real man is is someone who can be emotionally available you know and be vulnerable enough to to listen to what what's coming up to the surface and facing it head on and holding themselves accountable to find the unhealed parts of themselves that need fixing because if you just live in blame and victim consciousness and always say why me and my father wasn't around how are you going to break that cycle for your children so the book has to stop with you. And that's what I always look at now with my children. The book stops with me. I look at my father and I have to move away from those patterns that I um, later on in life learn about my father. And when got to my father, eventually when I was 20, that anger, um, you know, the frustration and the confusion was still there, but the anger had subsided. But then it wasn't until later on and when my, my father and, and my relationship uh, grew and developed, that I took him back to his childhood and understood who my granddad was to understand, ah, yeah. it's not even my father's fault. Past can be passed down through generations of trauma. Hand-me-down hand philosophies, 100%. So you mentioned that you're a father now. How, how's life as a father? Well, was it something that you embraced or were quite fearful of to begin with? I was 21. I was a young, young father. So when I talk about the 18 to 24 period where, you know, your prodigy environment started going out, moving away from, you know, made it as a professional football or that kind of thing. You know, I was a, I was a, a father unexpectedly at 21 years old. 
and it's something that I had to I had to grow up really quick and that was another thing I believe that kept me on the right track because now I had a responsibility so for me moving into fatherhood I'm always conscious and aware of not running the same ineffective patterns that you know my father was running unconsciously you know nobody chooses to be a bad person or not to be there for their children there's always so much to do with it deep rooted but I'm really conscious of that as a man, as a father to show up and, and be responsible. And, you know, and, and that bleeds into every other aspect of my life, football, personal life, professionally, uh, are the two things that I can take a lot of lessons from and, and apply it to the work that I'm doing. Mate, that's, that's powerful. Proud of you, man. Sounds like you come a long way. No, thank you. Yeah, well, this is it. It's like, you know, I always say, you know, like I said at the, the front end of this call, people are the best libraries. And, you know, just hearing your story and we have that commonality and you can resonate with people. You never know what you're going to hear. You never know what you're going to get from somebody. And, and you might have that light bulb moment or that like, you know, yeah, me too. And I think when you start to hear it, other people's stories and you can start to resonate you realize that you're not the only one, you know, and a lot of people when they go through stuff, especially with mental health, you definitely feel like you're going through it alone. And this is why conversations and conscious conversations are really important. I hear you. I think for a lot of blokes and particularly myself, before I sort of started peeling back the layers of the onion, it was uh, physically, I thought I could deal with it and, and could. Um, mentally, I thought I could think my way out of it emotionally i kind of kind of understood it wasn't sure it's definitely not spiritually i mean it's taken me some time to sort of explore those realms and understand what it means to be a human not just a man and what does the term spiritual mean to you well first and foremost we are spiritual beings having a human experience what i believe because i went to a vipassana recently and uh, I never knew, I never heard of it. It's a Buddhist term. It's, uh, it's basically a Buddhist practice. And uh, you, you go, you abstain from um, contact, eye contact, gesture, um, no reading, no writing. You're up at 4 a.m. and you meditate for 10 hours a day and you put your phone in a locker and you can't have any contact with the outside world. I did that, one, because if I'm going to move into this area of helping people, I want to reach down deep enough into my own soul in order to be effective, number one, because you can have all the degrees in the world and the PhDs and all the knowledge and intellect, but if you've not got life experiences and you're not taking yourself through the process of, of you know, going to those deep levels of personal development, then how are you going to understand what people are going through and growing through? So for me, I took myself off to the fastener. And there, what it taught me was when I say about we're spiritual beings having a human experience is because I was able to connect. I was able to slow my mind down, slow my thoughts down, not get sidetracked by secondary activity. Just all I've got is me in my head by myself. And day one, day two, day three is the most challenging days I've ever had because I had to look, imagine all the stuff surfacing. I couldn't distract. I couldn't pick up my phone, scroll through Facebook, take a picture of my feet and post it. I had to literally just look at myself, look at my own problems, look at my own issues, look at my thought process and realize. And what, what I realized is that those thoughts come into my head ain't even my thoughts. 
I had a one, I had one, one time I had this thought, right? And I know it sounds absolutely crazy. I was driving in my car. There was people broke down on the side of the car. I had in that split second wanted to plow off the road. Realize I'm thinking I'm crazy. Not little did I know that that's Grand Theft Auto three years ago. That's in my subconscious mind playing Grand Theft Auto on these games, you know, um, mowing people over on the game. And people claim the thought and then they claim to be crazy. That's not my thought. That's in my subconscious mind. That's just come up. Just let it go. You know, it comes and goes. So for me on this Vipassana, when I'm getting thoughts come up in my head, I'm realizing what is my thoughts? What is this voice that I'm hearing? Is it my nan's voice? Is it, is it a destructive, you know, voice coming from myself, destructive self-talk? Is, is that voice in my head rooting for me or against me? And I had to do a lot of work and identifying a lot of this stuff. And I backed myself into a corner where I actually started to go inwardly on a lot, much more deeper level through meditation. And I know meditation scares a lot of people, but you know, there's different kinds of meditation and I just wanted to reconnect with who I was. And so going back to what does spirituality mean to me, I just think it's, it's understanding that there's this higher power that, we're not just this shell, this body that we're living in and that it's, it's much bigger than us. So when you understand that and you understand that we are made by the creator, you know, God, divine universe, whatever's on the door for people, like when you go back and actually have a look why we're here and our purpose to life, like we're going to be, we're going to be here and gone in a blink of an eye. That to me makes me live my life very intentional and take deliberate action because I only have a small amount of time on this planet to make an impact and leave a legacy for my children, my grandchildren, and to have an impact with everybody that I come into contact with. So for me, what spirituality has done is made me very intentional in my life and not drift and float around without purpose. So for me, it's benefited my life greatly because loads of things loads of questions have been answered that way amazing man thanks for sharing i hope that obviously we're in the middle of a global pandemic and i hope people are asking themselves these types of questions um you know there's a lot of time on our hands now so it can't be a time problem um i just hope that i feel that this is their health and wellness retreat that the world's needed (laughs) for so long Yeah. yeah and do you think there will be noticeable change when we come out of lockdown, when we go back to whatever we class as normal, um, the new normal? Do you think we'll be better humans? I do. And that's not just being hopeful. I genuinely do. Because going off my personal experiences, when you don't have much time to um, be washed away in society, I, 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 the the analogy that I use is like this conveyor belt. You know, you, you're running around with eight hours in a week with your head chopped off. You know, yes, some guys are still working, but a, a lot of people now haven't got no choice but to stay at home, stay safe. And what that will do is it will bring a lot of stuff up to the surface. There's going to be conflicts and stuff like that. But I read something the other day when it says retaining information. You know, when we learn, learning is not just listening to a podcast or reading a book. Learning is making mistakes. So by actually living it and implementing it, 
you're actually having, I think it's 90% of learning comes from actually making a mistake. So there's going to be a lot of people, a lot of arguments, you know, in our house, as much as we are awakened and we're conscious, um, consciously aware of our conversations and like trying to develop uh, ourselves and one another in our relationship, there's still things that come to the surface. We're only human. So I think for a lot of people, they're going to, for the first time, have to deal with certain things. And what I try and tell people is that if you fall into victim consciousness, which is unfortunately what we do unconsciously, is that whenever I try and help people on a six-week program, one-to-one, whenever someone comes for help, I always give them the tools to help themselves. I don't want to fix them. It's about giving them the tools to fix themselves. And that's what we have the ability to do. And so I'm hopeful because I think that it not only backs people in a corner to look at themselves and reflect and, you know, maybe they've been in a career too long and uh, and maybe they need to readjust and and reevaluate things. But I think the work that they're going to do unconsciously on themselves and in a relationship with each other, I think they're going to have a bit more understanding of who they are what's important in life and work on those things going forward and not forgetting because no one will forget this pandemic this time, you know, it's been new territory for everybody. And I'm, I'm hopeful that people are resilient enough and intelligent enough, to, whether they know it and realize it or not unconsciously, the work that they're doing, you know, and, and like you say, what kind of questions do you ask yourself? And, and I think that's the biggest one is self-reflect because if you've been in a job for 20 years and you're through scarcity, you don't leave because you applied that much energy. You've come so far that you don't want to turn this thing around, although you're unhappy. You know, true courage is having the ability to start something without guarantees of success at the end of it. You know, that's true courage. So hopefully people will look at it and think, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, people on furlough financially people are on their knees so they understand that family is most important and that worst case scenario so hopefully they step into to a line of work that they want to do what's on their heart rather than following this pattern you know this conveyor belt that they've been living since maybe school for all these years maybe they have a realization of what actually is that they want to do i think what came up in the last podcast which which my guest luke said was all that's really important right now and stripped right back is food, shelter, and love. Yeah, hundred percent. What else do we need right now? And that's the realization, isn't it? And lead with love. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And, and that is the realization, hopefully for people to understand that, you know, that, that is the most important and you can get so washed away in this world of like, I've got to provide, especially coming from a guy. I'm fortunate enough to be in a relationship where there's no gender role and you know, the, the pressure, if you like, for a man to go out and provide for their family, I would do that naturally. Um, but to not have that pressure and understand that we're two equals coming together and sharing each other's journey and, and lifting each other up and rooting for each other through our own, whatever we want to do, but coming together and rooting for each other. That's amazing. I think a lot of men feel under pressure or put themselves in that position where they wear the mat, uh, wear the cape and they play rescuer. And what they've got to realize is that, okay, naturally for as long as I can remember, men have been doing that. 
you know, but what is the most important thing? And you come back to it. I always say to people, imagine you're in a fire. Okay. What's the three things that you will grab if you could and take with you? And I think if you ask that question, is it the iPhone, you know, or is it the photos, the memory box, you know, like what is important to us? Because the thing is we have, there's a, a lot of people in society that are driven by results. There's a lot of people in society that are driven by like materialistic and superficial things. And the moment they don't get it, they're not the same individual, but this pandemic now will allow people to realize that actually all this superficial thing, what does it mean? You know, all these material things, what does it mean? Because at the core of it, and when it's all said and done, family is ultimate. And yeah, I just hope that people have that realization. Me too. I feel like there's a big wake up exercise for everyone. I hope people can be a bit kinder, be a bit more loving and, and follow their their true authentic selves. I think you're right. Stripping back to what you said at the start of the conversation, people are almost scared to be themselves and be truly authentic. And there's a lot of time to think now. Um, and I do hope that there's a positive change. I just feel like we need it. And I fear that people are going to be a little bit more standoffish. You see it now, the kind of people don't want to get too close. They don't want to make eye contact. People struggle to just give a smile. And I hope we can see through that and, and break through the other side, break through those barriers, break through those walls you discussed earlier. Um, yeah, absolutely. In terms of what's your current new normal, how are you managing with COVID-19? What's your current day or working week looking like? How's any morning routines or practices that are helping you through it? Yes, yeah, so I have this thing called uh, power hour in the morning. So um, what I do is just, again, about finding that time for yourself, self-care, which will help with your mental health. Sometimes uh, I used to get out of bed and I used to just place my foot out of bed and I didn't know what my day looked like and I was so off the cuff, no schedule, no nothing. And I think over time that can swallow you up. And I think what you need is a structure. Um, however that looks, just try and take out an hour for yourself a day, whatever time of day, round your kids, whatever it is, just for you. And so I use a power hour in the morning where I'll do some stretching, some yoga. I'll do a chapter of my book. I might just sit there and meditate for 10 minutes and meditate. I don't mean sat in easy pose. Um, yeah, just don't sat there like in easy pose, just like, you know, what, <laughs> what people think meditation looks like. Meditation could be just going out into the garden, looking at nature, listening to the birds whistle, you know, just being in the present moment because I heard this stat and it blew my mind that 95% of the day we spend in our subconscious mind and only 5% of the day we're in our conscious mind. That means that we're on autopilot all day, every day, and we're not actually conscious in the room present because we're thinking about an unknown future or we're delving into the past or with a task doing. So that hour is so important for people to just give themselves, if it's five or 10 minutes, just to be present in the room. Reading books is amazing for me. I like that saying where they say the things that you once loved, you now hate and the things that you used to hate, you now love. And it's so true because life demands a different version of it, different stages when it comes to growth and not everybody grows, but when it comes to growth and you take the commitment to, to develop yourself, 
what you'll find is that you start moving away from the things that you used to love. So reading, I used to hate with a passion. One, because I was never very good at it. And, uh, and two, just because it was boring. But like reading, I make sure that wherever I used to take a left, I started taking a right. So some people on my program, I say, right, your, your, your homework for this week is brush your teeth with the opposite hand. Why? Mm. Because it's training your brain to do something different. It's tricking your brain because you're always wired the same way. So for me, reading a book, um, that disciplines me. That disciplines me to read a chapter and that keeps me in the present moment and keeps me focused. And so, yeah, for, so for the first hour, I do that. And then for the rest of the day, whether I have to take calls, obviously my life's adjusted in terms of, you know, revenues changed because how I work, I'm, I'm self-employed. So go out and do the work, public speaking, doing programs, of course, physically, I can't do that. Everything's moved now to virtual. So on, on Zoom calls and we've tried to tailor it that way and adjust. So we're all adjusting. So for me, it's just trying to, I don't like the, the term stay busy because what that does is you saying that you need a distraction to keep you occupied because you can't be in your own head. So what, what I encourage and what I certainly do and invite myself to do is always have, have that space and time alone to be able to do that. So then when I do my work, it's because I want to do it. It's not because I want to do it for a distraction. It's because I love to do it. And, um, and yeah, and just find finding structure is the ultimate because, you know, for your mental health, I know a lot of gyms are shut and I know a lot of people use the gym as that release, as that filter. So just, I love ironing. Like I fell in love with the chores. <laughs> like it's crazy. I never thought I'd say that, but like I literally put a podcast on, put some self-development stuff through the, through the iPad and I'm, I'm just ironing. And what that does, it allows me to just stay, uh, get, get the chores done, but like stay busy in a way where I'm being productive yeah. and, and doing all the things that I used to hate. So like, I've got no choice but to do that now. I could get away with it. I'm like, babe, I'm nipping out. You know, I've got this on or that on. Now I've got to do the ironing because I'm at home. Well, so, I know where to come to get my shirts done now. <laughs> I'm not saying I do it well. <laughs> but I turn the iron in. <laughs> I've, yeah, I mean, I'm very similar. I've, I like the idea of power hour. I literally take a similar period of time in the morning to do very similar tasks. One thing for me, it might be a takeaway for you and other people listening, was when we make these routines and these habits, there can be this expectation that if you miss it or you don't, you do your meditation first and your book after or your book before and then your meditation, you can kind of obsess about the routine. And I've not, I've not meditated today. And a really good rule, I read it in James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, which is great. Uh, highly recommend it. And his rule is just try and never miss two. And if you miss a day, let it go. Don't worry about it. But his just thing with any new routine or habit, if you miss one, just try not to miss two. And I've just implemented that. Like today, I didn't do my power hour. And I'm like, okay, it's fine. Last Sunday, I did. But tomorrow, yeah. Monday, I've not missed two. We go again. It's, it's this kind of like yeah. trying to get away from this old diet start on Monday. So if I had a burger Friday, I'll just open the floodgates and just everything comes flooding back in. Yeah. And, and that's a really important message because I think I'm speaking to the point and the level I've got myself in terms of practicing for a long time now. Um, but for anybody that is, is listening, who is trying to find routine and thinking like, how can I, 
put that structure into my daily life it is about showing yourself compassion and it's okay if you miss a day like you said i think jim Rohn says six days labor one day rest you know you know if you need to take a day off or if you need to take two take two but get back on the horse you know and it's like don't underestimate how powerful these daily practices are even if it's just five minutes because what you're doing consistently is that you are changing the paradigms and the patterns you know you've got this like i say I keep going on about this wiring in your brain it's a pattern developed over time when you start to do something take yourself out of your comfort zone or do something new you're going to reject it at first because it's it's not familiar but if you keep persisting and trusting there's a process and respecting that process over time don't underestimate i think it's 21 days to form a new habit or 21 days to break a habit you know so what a perfect time now to to just explore experiment yeah you know it's a perfect yeah. time find out what you who you are and what you enjoy what a perfect time to do that yeah um definitely I just want to transition into uh some of the work you're doing with your coaching and i wanted to read this out because i when i was looking at your website and what you're doing now i never heard of this before and it was brilliant and i want to read it for the listeners uh, and it's a nice segue into the next question. Okay. And it's about your logo and the sea turtle. Yeah. And it says here, the sea turtle represents those who are daring and courageous enough to lean with their heart and go after it. The sea turtle is born on land, born in the sand, and makes its way directly to the ocean. Without any training, any life experiences, the sea turtle heads straight into the sea. How is this? Because instinctively the sea turtle knows that it is created to be in water so the question is where have you been where are you going and why are you here so those three questions we certainly explored where you've been and why you're here and your legacy and footprint you want to live but where are you going what is the new path what is the path you're on and what was that transition from professional football to your coaching yeah no um great question and yeah the the sea turtle whenever i put content out the sea turtle um for anybody wondering gosh what's what's it with the sea turtle i'm glad like you've you've explained so cool. you know, never, because yeah never read that before I just i just took a snippet and just pasted it in my notes because i just wanted to bring it up and and that's kind of me you know it's about trusting trusting what calls me forward um now if you do that without getting to know yourself getting to date yourself and understanding how you take and how you work and especially have a a spiritual path or something that you believe in with faith my faith is leaning with my heart and trusting the process but embracing and respecting that there is a process what what does that do it allows me to practice patience you know what happens when um i don't it's like the chinese bamboo tree i've never i don't know if you've ever heard of the story of the bamboo tree but out out in the far east and this is the best way to explain it out in the far east there's there's a thing called a chinese bamboo tree and the guy plants a seed in the ground what's fascinating about this bamboo tree is that it takes five years to grow okay it takes five years and in the fifth year there's a breakthrough and within five weeks in the fifth year the bamboo tree grows 90 feet tall so the question is does the tree grow uh 90 feet tall in five years and i'm going to ask you this question does the tree grow 90 feet tall in five years or does the tree grow 90 feet tall in five weeks five years 
in my opinion. Yeah. And it's interesting because some people think it grows 90 feet tall in that five weeks. But any point in time, that guy stops watering and nurturing that seed and that patch of ground. The tea, the tree dies in the ground. It's the same with our dreams. It's the same with our purpose. You know, Jay Shetty says, your passion is for you. Your purpose is for others. So my purpose is reaching as many people as I can and having an impact on them, you know, uh, positively with mental health and just well-being in general. And so for me, like that allows me to practice patience. This guy planting this seed, he knew it took five years. Of course, after the first three months, six months, people are mocking him, people are criticizing him, you know, can't see it. Maybe after a year, he's thinking, why bother? I can't see anything. And going back to it, like people struggle if they don't know the end result is success, they struggle to even commit to it. And can you commit to something? And like I say, true courage is having the ability to start something without um any guarantees of success so for me do i know that there's going to be success at the end of it well that's not guaranteed but i respect that as a process and every single day i'm bettering myself i'm working on myself diligently all the time to get better and i'm reaping what i'm sowing along the way and there's doors opening and and that's that's what i try and encourage again with the sea turtle instinctively going with what's on your heart the one thing that i fear in life is getting to 85 years old in the uh, nursing home with my children and grandchildren around me and i look back in the rearview mirror and i regretted not taking the courage to go after what was on my heart and play it safe and just go and take an ordinary job just to play it safe and be comfortable and have fi um, financial security. So how it works with me being self-employed is I have to generate my own business. So let's go back. So coming out from football, I had a year left on my contract. I woke up one morning and I said, right, this is the day I move away from full-time football and get on with the rest of my life. I, I went to five, the five most important people in my life. And I went to them and I said, this is what I'm thinking about doing. And they said, don't do it. And I said, why? And they said, because there's no guarantee. Again, there's no guarantee. And I did it. And I made that transition. I made a conscious effort. I had a year left on my contract and I came away, chose to come away from full-time football. Now, there's a bit more of a story to this. In 2015, I lost my mother to mental health. So my mother, well malnourished, uh, alcohol addiction, suffering with mental health from all the abuse that she took growing up. She was, in, she was depressed. Later on in life, at 50, she lost a life to mental health. And the doctor came around the house and the doctor said, you need to get your mother into a hospital and she, she needs care. If she don't, she's going to die at home in the next two weeks. When he told me that, I was thinking, I didn't even know that my mother was that bad. Like I'd seen visibly that, yeah, she's lost a little bit of weight. I didn't know that it was a crisis point. We get into hospital, 17 days she spent in hospital. After the third day, the doctor broke the news to us that she would not make it out. I spent 17 days by my mother's bedside. So for me, I looked around in that room and again, can remember when I was 24 and I had that realization through my prayer life of like God was placing me in the most isolated positions. 
So this point in time, I was questioning my faith. I was like, if God's real, why is he putting me through this? You know, victim again, why me? And I'm there seeing my mother take her last breath and I'm looking around and I'm like, my guardian angel, she handed a notice in two weeks ago. Like, where is she? And I went through that transition, that process, end of life care with my mother. The biggest me- um, message that I got was, again, and I've mentioned it before, is live your life intentionally and take deliberate action because life is unpredictable and it's not promised to anybody. My mother was 50. I had a duty and a responsibility to pull everybody that I come into contact with out of suffering and misery. Why? Because I didn't have the ability or the knowledge to be able to help my mother. I, I didn't. I didn't go through any courses, any programs. I wasn't developed in that area. I didn't know about mental health. I committed myself through mental health. So the most successful period of my life, going to Wembley three years in a row and getting back-to-back promotions three years in a row, meeting Thierry Henry, playing in front of 60,000 of the Emirates. And yet off the pitch, I was going through a secret storm that no one knew about. In that period, that secret storm that I was going through, I was growing through it, which was catapulting and football then became a vehicle to give me leverage into helping as many people as I can. And I say this in the most humblest way, football placed me in such a privileged position in order to do the work. So you can imagine when I'm making that transition and I come away from a contract, I've still got a year left. We're in League Two, just accumulated, you know, all this money through the FA Cup run and getting promoted. I'm in such a good place. People will snatch their hand off to be in my position. So you can imagine the looks that I got, such a controversial decision to come away from full-time football at 30, fit and healthy, can still play. But I understood my calling. I understood that I'm like, okay, football has been a vehicle to this point. Now my purpose is even bigger than me. So when I said I attached a legacy to what I committed to, pulling my mum and nan out of certain situations, that commitment didn't stop when, my, when I lost my mother. In fact, it amplified now my purpose is even bigger and i knew that's what my mother would want so for me i dived in to this 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 new life i reinvented myself and the biggest challenge was tom 5000 people on facebook 5000 followers on instagram all rooting for nathan arnold the footballer and the biggest challenge i've had is people falling up with nathan arnold the person because i can put a photo up on football and it could be anything. I could not put a caption and I'd get 400, 500 likes instantly. If I put a post up what's got a little bit of emotion attached to it around mental health, I'd probably get a quarter of the likes. People probably perceive me to be different, weird, can't understand me, confused in my decision. But over time, because I've generated my own work and I've, I've the bamboo thing, I've trust the process and I've continued every day with the same amount of effort, enthusiasm and energy applied to my work. People are now starting to take notice. People are now messaging me and saying, Nathan, I get it. I need help. I need support. Can you give me that advice? So for me, answering your question for the transition, very difficult in terms of financially and mentally walking around Ikea on a Saturday afternoon, looking at my phone, thinking I'd be out walking out the tunnel now. Those little things that I've that are, are programmed and conditioned over time for so long, making those adjustments very, very difficult, but 
on uh on emotionally i was detached from it because i knew my purpose that makes sense so i already knew what i was called to do and i couldn't even make it wasn't even a decision i could not reject the call to move forward because again when you talk about your spiritual path i knew this is what was calling me forward and like i said your passion uh, your passion is for you your purpose is for others again i'm just i'm just a little bit different and when it comes to making that transition i just i'm almost going into the unknown but i know that i'm going to leave no stone unturned and transfer my mentality and my values through to this life and carry it through because it's all about your character and my character doesn't change i'm not i'm not going to say tom i'll give it three years and if i don't accumulate enough money then i'm going to pack it in this is this is a lifestyle for me this is life this is my calling until the color of my understanding redirects me and repositions me um this is what i'm called to do for right now and it's serving a purpose and for the last two years now i've exceeded twenty-five thousand people and for me it's about because it's a difficult one in this line of work and i say it a lot and i think we said it on a previous call that what can happen is because mental health is big there's not really any protection who goes out and stands on a stage and talks about mental health yeah. And I think there needs to be a little bit more protection in those areas who specialize in that to make sure that your messages ain't conflicting or misleading. So for me, the biggest challenge is to not get sucked in to see it as competition in this business, because there's a lot going on in terms of mental health and, um, and all of that stuff. I'm a, I'm a charitable guy. I've lived it. Everything I share, I lived. Of course you need to earn a living. So for me, the hardest thing is, is going back to lacking limitation when I was younger, is to volume myself and volume my own work. My life coach, when I first got in, in, introduced to uh, this line of work that I do with my programs, he said to me, who's the, who's the number one in your life? Straight away, I said, my family, my daughters. And he said, no, wrong answer. And I said, no, it's my family, my daughters. And he said, no, you are. And I don't think many people put themselves at the top of the priority list. And he said, when you get better, your relationships get better. When you get better, your health gets better. When you get better, your friendships get better. And I was like, oh, it all starts with me. And it's very hard concept to understand and accept for people because they think they're being selfish. And I would say to people, be very selfish when it comes to working on yourself and developing yourself, because all of that, below if you get better everything else gets better and what it'll allow you to do it'll put you in a position where then you can be selfless and help so many people so be very selfish in the first part in terms of giving yourself permission to grow to develop to learn because so many people leave themselves behind and i was the same i could give the best piece of advice to somebody else and not take that advice for myself so yeah i've been there before Sorry if I've gone around the question no, a little no, bit, but, no. but, um, but yeah, so basically with this transition, uh, very tough at the beginning, underestimated financially and mentally how tough it would be, got through that other side and then everything just made sense and it started to make sense for my family, my nan. I'll tell you a funny story about my nan. I move, so from Grimsby, I score at Wembley when we went back to Milton Keynes and to the hotel and the chairman put on all the food and drinks and score at Wembley three months later, 
I'm sat on holiday. My agent rings me and tells me that um, I've had an offer on the table from Grimsby to renew my contract. I turn that deal down because sea turtle instinctively, my inner guidance system, that GPS on my, you know, my gut feeling, yeah. it was like a no. And I was like, no, like it's a no brainer. We've just got to leak to. I'm happy. I'm settled. I'm comfortable. My wages goes up. What do you mean? No. And I had this thing, this instinct was like, don't sign it. And I didn't sign it. And again, controversial moment. My nan rings me up, says that, what are you playing at? What are you thinking? And then again, going back to the Chinese bamboo tree, the guy probably have an internal dialogue with himself. That was me like, Shh, what have I done? Have I made the right choice? Mm. Two months on, Danny Cowley rings me at Lincoln City. Six months later, I'm playing in the FA Cup against Arsenal, 60,000. My nan rings me up. She says, wasn't a bad decision after all. So during my career, by always listening to my gut feeling, and it's not for everybody, this is just my journey, but going and listening to my gut feeling and my instincts has always led me, and there's been enough evidence gathered along the way to understand that. Actually, when I do go with my gut instincts, good things come from it. And of course, that isn't for everybody. I'm not saying someone sat here listening to this thinking, oh, I'm going to quit my job because that's on my heart. You've got to do, it all starts with you and understanding yourself first. Of course, you need to rationalize a few things. And I always do that and always have a game plan when I ever maneuver and navigate. But I think going back to it, the transition, if I get to three years and it's not working time, I'll look at ways of improving. I'll adapt, mm -hmm. I'll adjust because this is my calling for now, what I feel is the right thing. You've done a lot of work on yourself and you put yourself in a position where you can back yourself. I can hear the passion and you know, confidence oozing out of you. And you know, I'm sure your mum's looking down on you, man, very proud. And I'm excited for you just sat here. Like I'm getting so much from this, so much value. And I'm sure the listeners will as well. Um, no, man. I'd be interested to hear I, I, like, I, I, what sort of people are you working with, man? Like, what's your, uh, I see you're doing a bit in schools, a bit in prisons. Like, tell us a little bit more about what you're up to. Yeah. So, first, it started out, you know, just again, first year doing things for free. I had this lacking limitation mindset. My mum used to say to me, be grateful for what you have. So, there's me going out into the world, making this transition from football, reinventing myself, attached to this identity that I've had for 14 years as a footballer getting gigs, going into schools based off Nathan Arnold, the footballer gets the gig. I'm stood there and I find it hard to charge when they say, Nath, what's your prices? I'm like, I'll do this thing for free. Like, this is what I love to do. And, and it's not about me. Like, I love to help people. Then I understood that actually the time and the energy and not only that, the money and the time and energy that I've spent working on myself, taking me, myself to a, th a program that cost me £3,000, going to Vipassana, taking 10 days out of my family's life to work on myself and go deeper on myself, to spend the time, money and energy on myself. But again, the life coach said to me, Nave, you need to let go of this lack and limitation. This, this like, it, you know, be grateful for what you do have and 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 do things for free because end of the day you've got to live you've got a family to provide for and not only that the biggest thing he said is that you've got to value what you do because if you don't put a cost to you who's going to take you seriously 
and and I thought wow like I've got these qualifications I've got this such depth to my content and my life experiences but the hardest thing Tom was I loved help people so for me to charge that was very difficult then I surrendered to that and I used to say to schools you know what are you willing to pay you tell me I'll do it for free based off my story based off what I'm telling you based off my services tell me what you think it's worth mm. so it went from that and and then so yes yeah, started in schools primary schools then secondary schools colleges universities and then I've just started going into sports teams obviously prior to the pandemic and um and my programs in prisons uh, prison is, is a wonderful thing because um the the main message is for me to leave somebody feeling that they're seen and heard now you can imagine somebody who has just been on this you know going through this um this path where he's just making mistake after mistake after mistake can't figure life out imagine that making all the wrong choices product and, environment yeah and getting himself into a position where is everything all his actions are led into this point now i have to meet them right where they are if i meet them looking down at them because i'm better than them or if i meet them um with judgment judgment you know judging them on their past appearances and their history personal history I'm going to, I'm uh, losing battle straight away. So what I have to do is I have to adopt their pair of eyes. I have to go and meet them right where they are with compassion. And I think the prison stuff is probably the, the most enjoyable work for me because it's not only the challenging, but it's, it's the fact that it's proven if I can get results in prison, from somebody who's so habitually just on the doing the wrong things and six weeks later I can transform somebody. Imagine the confidence that I take then to go into every other area of my life with this work. So for me, I love the prisons because not only are we transforming with Nathan Arnold coaching, basically what we do is they go through the program and then I give them t-shirts with mentor on the back and I've managed to get get the governor involved where the idea is that they go back on the wings and become mentors so it's empowering them love that a ripple effect yeah exactly so i always say can i plant something in somebody that will bleed into their future and they can carry so whenever they're alone whenever they're in that dark space can they hear my voice and message that's the most powerful thing i think can you leave Um, someone moving the needle just a degree to the left or right can just have a profound effect on someone's life that's what i love about the work i do it's just and sometimes you may not even ever know what who it's touched but that feeling that you just yeah some influence even the possibility of it let alone it happening yeah absolutely i can remember i know we've not touched on it but like when I got placed from um, special education to normal, edu- uh, sorry, from normal class to special education, Miss Oldsworth placed me into this facility. There was another lady called Miss Doughty. Now, Miss Doughty was a volunteer. And she said something to me and planted something in me that I didn't understand. I'm eight years old. I can't process this. But in hindsight, it's a great thing looking back. I was like, wow, what a powerful message. And basically what she said to me was, 
don't allow what Miss Oldsworth, no, don't allow Miss Oldsworth's opinion of you to become your truth. I've heard a similar quote, obviously, when I've grown up, saying never allow someone's opinion of you to become your reality. Four years ago, I crossed paths with this same lady, Miss Doughty, the volunteer who said this to me. And for years, I was like, where is she? Where does she live? What's her number? What's her contact? Is she on Facebook? I'd love to reconnect with her now, do this work. Fortunately enough, four years ago, I went back to her and I said to her, I want to ask you a question. And I said, how did you have the ability to say what you said to me that day? Like, you said to me, don't allow Miss Oldsworth's opinion of you to become your truth. And I never understood it. Can you explain that? And she said, the challenge is to get you to see what I can see inside of you, if that makes sense. So whenever you work with somebody, the challenge is, can you see past all their behavior? Can you see past all of that and see them for their true potential and that mm. they truly are? And then get them to see what I can see in themselves. And I know it sounds quite confusing, but you kind of get the concept. And uh, so going back, mm. going back to planting that thing inside of somebody is so important. Like you say, you never know when it's going to land. You never know. And this what moves me and gets the hairs on the back of my neck when I hear about this story. Um, Les Brown talks about on his podcast. And he said he was putting on a, a seminar uh, for this woman. Her husband drops her off at the seminar. As she enters the building, Les Brown comes into contact with the guy. And the guy's skeptical and he's in a bad mood for whatever reason. And he's just dropped her off and he's in a bad mood. Les Brown goes up to him and he says, thank you for dropping your wife off. It's going to be really valuable. And he said, yeah, whatever. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't, I don't believe it's going to work. Blah, blah, blah. Really skeptical. And Les Brown was really positive And he said to him underneath his behaviors said to him, you have something special in you as well. And he left two months later, Les Brown gets a letter through the post and he opens the letter and a guy has written to him, same guy. And he said, that day, that moment when you left me with those words of you have something special, nobody's ever told me that before. That day, I was dropping my wife off to the seminar. I was going to go back into my garage and I was going to get the gun and end my life. And he put love from Triggerman at the bottom. And they still keep in contact. And he's known by wow. trigger, trigger man. One word, powerful. Goosebumps there. And that was just from one interaction. What, with one him. interaction with those words. And, and you know, going back wow. to it, like you say, what you plant in people is so important. So I'm really mindful of, I, I adapt and adjust my message to the audience. If I go to primary school, secondary school, prisons, sports teams, I try and always look at what do they need to hear and try and translate it in a way where it can land and that can they can take with them for the rest of their life and what's so good about it is that you can you're the vehicle for change like you've done a lot of work on yourself we're, we're never done we're never finished doing that but you can inspire someone else and that audience you know can go home and take something from it whether it's a school prison you know the sky's the limits do you, you know do you want to What's the, what's the platform? How, where do you want to take this? What, where can you see yourself in five years? Very cliche question, but where do you want to take this? 
Yeah, I want to be speaking all around the UK, all around Europe, all around the world. And the beautiful thing about this, and people might look at it and think, well, is it the TV stage? You maybe not got the uh, the speaking ability to speak at an elite level and all of that. And you're right, I'm at the TV stage. And going back to it, I trust the process. I practice patience. By no means do I think I've got it all together and know exactly, you know, what I'm gonna that that um the finished article. Like I know in ten years' time that i'm just going to keep evolving keep developing keep growing and this isn't something that like i say it's a job for me so i'm going to get bored in three years time this is a lifestyle i've been living this way by personal development stuff picking up and open up a book every day since i was at football you know since i was in the thick of it from 24 years old so for me how i see it is like sky is the limit and that, that's what i want to do and i want to go and set out projects all around the world i want to run projects and stuff like that but i don't necessarily want my name attached to it you know i would love to make a bunch of money so i can contribute to all the things that i feel strong and passionate about and that isn't for personal gain but i'm thinking how can i generate enough money so i can then live a life of contribution because ultimately that's what it is. If you're not living a life of contribution, then you ain't living the fruits of life. And it's not, and it's not the transaction. It's not like I will put something into you because I want something back. You know, it's not it's, a transaction. It's like behavior. kindness. I had a great quote and I might butcher it slightly, but it's kindness is like air miles. The more you give, the higher you fly, the further you go. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, and what, what I picked up as well, Nath, is that, you know, we're going through a pandemic. There's a lot of fear right now financially. And not once have I heard you, that fear creeping of, oh, you know, people, you know, I'm stuck indoors. You know, what's going to happen when we go back to normal? You know, is there an appetite for this type of work? You know, should I play it safe and just do a bit of football coaching? You know, you know, if this happens again in a year's time that, you know, a lot of people are thinking like that and you're like, no, like I've, I want to hit the world stage. I know what I want. I've been doing this for years and it's almost like the COVID's fueling you rather <laughs> than you pulling back and going, oh, I don't know, man. like, you know, a lot well, of times to is, think and this is it. I always say to, you know, when I manage at Melton Town for my boys at football, we just finished the season 20 games unbeaten the season finishes null and void. We have to start all over again. I'm like, no. But I say to the players, you know, great, get the car, get the house, get the girl, get the name on the back of the door, get the name on the back of the shirt, whatever that may be. Great, fantastic. What happens when you lose that? How much is your character worth? How much is your integrity worth? You know, that's what it's about. So for me, you could strip me of everything, but I know who I am and I have a solid foundation of who I am. And I know what drives me and I know how I made the money. So then it's not a problem. So this pandemic, it don't derail me because I'm in familiar territory in terms of putting myself in those isolated positions in order to grow, if that makes sense. I don't want to put myself in a comfortable position. Example of this, I'm doing this podcast now up in the, the third floor, like I said, at the front end of this, you know, in my girl's room, we've got a sofa bed. I then go upstairs and have a night off. You know, we swap it so my partner can get a night off and I had a night off. I've got a double bed. I've got a king size bed, in fact, over there, over the way. And I've got a sofa bed where I'm sat on right now. My partner comes up in the morning. She sees me fast asleep, sound asleep, snugged up on the sofa bed. She said, you've got a king size bed. What are you doing? The girls ain't here. What are you doing sleeping on that thing? Because I don't want to get comfortable. You know, 
And for me, I'm not going to get the king size bed until I'm fulfilled, until I've reached where a place where I'm like, right, okay, I've got financial freedom and I'm living my best life. Like I sit on this sofa bed as a gentle reminder of staying close to the fire of where it all began for me. Because if I get comfortable and get satisfied, I'm going to then become stagnant and stop. There's, there's something about challenging yourself and putting yourself in uncomfortable positions, whether that's physically, financially. Um, you know, that, I think that's why a lot of people who have been in past pain or perhaps who have had addiction problems, they, they find, I see like the ultra marathon thing becomes a big thing. Like the Ironmans, they find comfort in pain and it's that kind of constant challenge that makes you feel alive and to never, never just stay stagnant. Yeah, that's it. And I think a lot of the time it's as long as it's healthy, you know, it's like, I know the reason why I'm doing it and it serves a greater Mm -hmm. purpose and um and and yeah so so it is that it's it's sort of getting comfortable with the uncomfortability and whenever i've worked with people if i can get them past that barrier of that uncomfortable stage and the first thing that i do on my program is that again do a post-mortem on our past take them back to their past i love that idea (laughs) post-mortem and we go back and revisit the past and Mm -hmm. what that allows them to do is straight away it takes them through that uncomfortable process, but they find who about find a lot about themselves through that process before day one, before they've even started the program. So then I can meet them on day one and we've already done a lot of work. And not only that, I can unpack their life so I can meet them right where they are and I can give them what they want individually and tailor their program to them because everyone's different. It's not one size fits all. Not copy and paste. Exactly. There's this kind of culture, isn't there, of like, you know, the life coach, personal development gurus, you know, I can make you six figures, the YouTube ads. Yeah. And there's get, this, get everyone seems to think there's this, this cut and paste formula and everyone's going to be a Forex trader and be driving around Lamborghinis. Like that's, yeah. that's sold to you. You know, you see it all the time. Yeah. But patience and hard work. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, and what does it all mean at the end of it? Because, you know, the car, the latest trainers, the latest iPhone, the latest gadgets, you know, whatever we see on Instagram that's blown up or what success looks like. For me, again, what does it all mean? Because at the end of that, all we want is a better feeling. And I can guarantee that's the answer because you look at people who buy a new car, guarantee the novelty of wear off and then you want a new one. You get new trainers, somebody else has got a new pair, so you want to copy and compare. So for me, it's like, why do you want to do it? And again, if it's for personal gain and if it's for superficial and materialistic things, then things don't last. Those things ain't going to take you and sustain your life further, uh, you know, to, to the point where you want it to. And, and funnily enough, I had this realization, and I'm obviously mindful of, of, of eating into your time, but the biggest realization I had is that we played Arsenal in front of 60,000 at the Emirates. The week leading up to that, BMW, Audi and Mercedes all rang me up on my phone and said, take a car of your choice to promote us going down to London. Sun Paper got in touch. Uh, there was there at the training ground, snapping us all the time, living like celebrities. Okay, we're a non-league team. Um, I'm getting in my bloody two and a half grand car, you know, and then in a week's time, 
I'm brushing shoulders with Alexis Sanchez, who, who's got a 200 grand car, you know. And that week, I had a phone call on my sofa, uh, and it was United States of America. I thought it was one of these PPI calls. I was, I, I was adamant not to answer it. And, uh, and I thought, no, I've got to answer it. And um, it was, I was live on air in New York, you know, on Sirius XM and was in Times Square. And it just blew up crazy for the, for the week. On the Thursday, I went down and met Thierry Henry, had an interview, had a dialogue. It only meant to be a 45 minute interview. It didn't shortchange me. We spent two hours together. I picked his brain. He asked me questions. We had a beautiful dialogue go and play in front of 60,000 at the Emirates on Saturday, go back to the landmark hotel where Bayern Munich stayed three, three days before in the Champions League, where you could literally eat off the floor of this hotel. I'm ringing my friends up thinking, you won't believe where I'm staying, you know, taking pictures, sending them. Get back to the hotel after playing in front of 60,000. Peak of my experience here. You can imagine how amazing it is. Order room service, not because I'm hungry, just because I can. <laughs> Go watch the highlights on match of the day. Go to sleep. Wake up in the morning. I'm starfishing in this king size bed and I have a huge realization. I'm staring at the ceiling and I hear this voice in my head. And of course, at the beginning, I didn't know what this voice was. And it said, Now what, Naif? Like, now what? I didn't even have time to look at my notifications on Facebook and on social media. I didn't even have time to call my nan and say, Wow, did you see me on telly? I couldn't even have time to just reflect on what I've just achieved and how far I've come. And I had a voice say, now what? And what that meant was a year on when I look back was it was my ego saying, you need something else. And you're always chasing something else and your ego will leave you saying, and I think Eckhart Tolle says this in his, in the power of now book. He says that your ego will leave you saying one day, someday in the future, my life, when I get the fill in the blank, then it will be great. So you, this perception, like you say, looking at Instagram and, and, and looking at people's lives and, and attaching it to like some material thing, that's what I was led to believe that at the end of success was sustainable happiness. I can tell you now, playing in front of 60,000, as soon as that feeling subsided and the adrenaline stopped, that feeling just subsided so quickly. Mm. And I popped back into my real world again. And then a year later, things materialize. I step away from football. I go traveling. I go to Nepal. I go to Shantinagar in this village. And there's kids, rubble, glass everywhere, no shoes. And I learned so much about those kids because I thought, what is inside of those kids to be that happy? They've got what we perceive to be nothing. Okay. Financially, superficial. And I thought, wow like they've got absolutely nothing what i deem to be nothing and i learned so much from them because i learned that happiness can't be earned owned worn or consumed it is an experience that you tap into every single day of your life you have to be self-generated to create your own happiness it's not attached to something will bring you temporary happiness but going back to this better feeling that we all want this better feeling isn't hidden behind the thing it's inside and the answers lie inside. And the reason why I use the sea turtle as my logo again, the answers are all inside. Everything is internal and becoming self-generated, finding your own happiness, finding out what, what makes you tick, what you enjoy, what hobbies do you like, practicing playing to your schedule. Like, you know, life is amazing. And, and, and that for me is 
is understanding that it, you know you have to be self-generated because I've had the car, the house, the money, the name on the back of the shirt, people patting me on the back, telling me how great I was. That feeling will subside. And it's about living a life full of purpose that you get up, place one foot in front of the other every day and you are happy. You know, you're doing something that serves a purpose. And for me, that is the fruits of life. That is that is where all the, you know, the great fruits of life is. Wow, mate, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing. Just getting chills, just listen to that. No, thank you. I'm mindful of eating, eating this time, but no, yeah. it's flown by. It's absolutely flown by. Um, I guess I'd like to finish up on some, they're not really rapid fire, but just tease a little bit more out of you. Yeah, sure. um, if you had one piece of advice for a person who wants to succeed in your field, what would that be? And let's stay in the arena of uh, personal development, public speaking. Yeah. Um, if I had one piece of advice would be again, and I've touched on it and I know it's not an exciting answer, but it is to, to get to know yourself, you know, and ask yourself why. You know, I yes. think I can't remember. What is your why? Simon yeah. Sinek says it. What is your why? It's such an important question. You're always looking at the how, when, who, and why? Why because, are we doing it? What are we yeah, doing? yeah. And I know you. I think it's is it Cameron that you've in, you know you've been on a podcast with oh, before, yeah. and I can remember him saying that he's the vehicle. And absolutely right. Like, if you want to mm-hmm. do this line of work, you're the vehicle. But what are you fueling that vehicle? And, you know, you've got to make sure that there's a driving force attached to it, because if you hit that roadblock or that diversion, and then it's all about what are you going to do when hardship happens, when adversity hits, when life hits you on the blind side? You know, when my mother passed away in 2015 and life hit me on the blind side and it really tests my faith, I'd always doing prep- I was already doing preparation from the age of 24. So that preparation, that, that time alone, is really important because then I could embrace the season that I'm in because going back to Nathan on coaching, which I didn't mention is that 75% of life is wonderful, as amazing as hilarious is where all, you know, the amazing things happen. But with Nathan on coaching, we focus on the 25%, the hardships, the adversity, the setbacks, the difficulties, the defeats, because if you can be well equipped and have enough tools in your toolbox to be able to develop, to grow and to harness that season that you're in, then everything else becomes easy. And you will naturally fall into that 75% of life. And what we do, we focus on being successful, having the nice things, this 75% of life and locking the 25% away in a box. So I'm all about with Nathan on a coaching is let's get down, dive in deep and get to understand who you are. Let's develop the tools, the methods, the techniques, the strategies in your life. So when the season comes like it did with my mother in 2015, five days later, after my mum took her last breath, I was playing at Blundell Park. The manager said, have as much time as you want off. But you see, I was already prepared. So for me, when that when life hit, I got out onto the pitch five days later and we won 2-1 and I scored both goals. And it's probably the best performance I've had in my career you know, five days after, because again, going back to the question, get to know yourself because that will pull you through that storm. That will pull you through the hard times because life is going to hit and, you know, are you going to be derailed or are you going to have enough about you to be well equipped for that time? Because Les Brown says, and this is the harsh reality of life, you're either in a problem, just left a problem or heading towards one. And if you can have that mindset and if you can keep that close, 
why wouldn't you want to work on yourself? Because if you know that you've got a problem coming around the corner, which is unavoidable, you know, then if you're prepared for that, and it doesn't mean live there, it doesn't mean dwell on that negative, but life is part negative and you've got to be able to handle it. And to a certain degree, you can pick your problems. It's like uh, Mark Manson says in the subtle art of not giving a fuck in his book. He says, what problems do you want to have? You can't avoid problems. Life is full of problems, always will be. Yeah. And I just love that idea of problem solving. Like what problems do you want to solve? Yeah, What skill set can you acquire that helps you solve problems? Absolutely. And And like most people tiptoe into the process of things, you know, not giving all they've got because um, they're not sure about the payoff at the end of it. So people tiptoe and try and stay in the comfort zone and try and avoid pain because naturally as human beings, we are pain avoiders. So I'll stay in this job. I'll stay in this relationship. You know, I won't dare have a career change. I daren't make that decision because what if I fail? What if it don't work out? So if there's not a payoff at the end of it and they can't see success at the end of it, a lot of people ain't courageous and bold enough to take that decision. So it is, it is about that. It's about, you know, going back to your question, any advice that I'd give anybody who wants to everything that I share I've lived. And I think what, what's really difficult is if I had all the degrees, but no life experience, then I'm coming from intellect and intelligence. I sound really intelligent, but I I can't resonate with a person on a certain level because I've never Mm. lived it. I've never walked. It's different energy. It's different. If different energy. Yeah. So, as Nathan on a coaching, I want to bring people into my business who I can develop as coaches, but they have to have some kind of life experience because you can't just stand on stage. If you don't come in from the heart, you can't reach the heart. Mm. And what happens is kids will find you out. Kids will see straight through you. If they know that you're not authentic and genuine and coming from the heart, you can say all the nice words you can come across on the surface as like, you know, you've had it all together, you know what you're doing, but it's all about connection. And for me, I'm trying to develop those people and they will come and grow organically and they'll just attract to me naturally when the time's right. But I'm going to handpick people to come and join me on this journey to come with me so then we can reach more people. And I think that's important to them to mirror and model the actual brand and the purpose of what Nathan Honor Coaching is all about. Love that, man. Something that I do and that to to sort of practice that authenticity and keep myself in check that I'm not just projecting how I want to feel that day or the particular audience, how they want to see me or perceive me to be liked more or whatever else is in my public speaking, when I'm um, about to deliver a speech in whatever forum that may be, I do a lot of stuff in the men's mental health or in construction or um, the talk club. And we have this thing in the men's talking group is a check-in at the start of the meetup is how do you feel out of 10? And I open my talk with just a brief explanation of uh, what we do in talk club and what that means, that metric. And I just say, look guys, I'm going to take that mask off. Like uh, out of 10, yeah, I'm a six today uh, because X, Y, Z, keep it brief, take that mask off. And then there's no, there's no expectations. If I, if I drop dead on the stage or if I faint or have an anxiety attack or wee myself, they know that maybe that's because I'm a three today and I've told them, but it just that's, sets that benchmark. That's amazing. Anything yeah. from there is, is an up like, if, yeah. you know, and that's um, such a powerful thing. That's amazing because what's that, what that does is not only gives them permission to be true to how they're feeling in that moment, but they will look at you 
on that stage of somebody that has it all together and that is probably yeah. robotic and don't feel so for you a lot of people just, think yeah that yeah, public yeah. speakers are 10 out of 10 all the time they're like Absolutely. successful they've got the nice suit on that you know they're they've, they've lived it and they've dealt with all their problems but Absolutely. actually when you stand up there and go yeah i'm a six today because um yeah my anxiety's been through the roof and you know i'm just here to to just share with you my story or whatever it is that you're trying to deliver value to yeah it's like your analogy earlier with the onion with the onion the beautiful analogy you use like it's a forever unfolding you just keep unraveling layer upon layer but what i would say to people is that you're gonna you're gonna come across pain anyway play it safe or what you know you're gonna inflict uh, you're gonna experience some kind of pain so why not get a reward for it why not develop yourself why not be well equipped because you know i always see it and i think the most challenging thing i do about myself is that whenever i'm in a situation a conflict with somebody a conflict with my fiance whatever it is and that's a trigger for me and i'm first quick to be like defensive i catch it and i'm like ah here you are your little beauty like that is an unreal part of myself that needed fixing like where have you been hiding but a lot of people, what they do, they're not even self-aware of that. And what they'll do, like you say, project onto others. Um, but when you can find that um, accountability for yourself to take full responsibility, you know, yes, you're going to have people that are going to challenge you and there's going to be opposition, period. How you respond to it is completely in your core. Like you can react to something naturally what will trigger you and you'll do that organically can you respond can you catch yourself in that moment before you're about to react and can you respond and make a wiser choice and it only a split second but when you can start to get to that point where you can see yourself filling up with anger or frustration annoyance whatever it is and if you can catch yourself in that moment you you have you've learned about yourself you've worked on yourself in that moment to think gosh like i used to react like that but now i respond and i don't even it don't even bother me you know and that that is for anybody listening when they say oh i don't know where to start they might have heard that then and just thought oh yeah i do that now like something happened to me last year and the same thing happened again now and i and i handled it better you know that is that is development 100 percent so for someone like yourself who's done so much work on themselves and, and come so far, you know, how you've really um, articulated that in the podcast tonight, what right now sat here, what scares you? Hmm. What scares me is getting to 85 years old to the nursing home and I've got my dreams, my goals, my ideas all still left in me my dance my song my voice um the things that i didn't do you know i think les brown says something like you know don't get to the end of life when have you dreams and goals and all your ideas you know still left in you and that is it that's what scares me ultimately is having my children you know for me i've lost both parents at the i'm 32 now i've lost both parents and i've been around their deathbed i've seen the transition i've been with them when they've taken the last breaths 
what what great experience for me to understand that when I look at my 80 year old self what scares me the most what scares me the most is not being able to live my life um you know on 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 full if I go through life on end you know on um on empty you know that that is what it's about emptying my tank every day emptying my bucket every day giving all I've got you know we, we come on a podcast on a Sunday evening now and I, I just I have to give my all I can't shortchange I can't shortchange an answer I can't skim over it what you mm. see is what you get and for me it is that mentality of just like I don't want to get to the end of my life whenever that day comes and I always say to people can you rest your head on the pillow at night knowing that you couldn't do any more you couldn't give any more you know that when you're at that place honestly when you're at that place when you look at yourself in the mirror or you can rest your head at night and you say i've gone all in today that like i couldn't have done any more i made that phone call i paid that bill yeah. you know like whatever it is th- that is when you can sleep soundly at night and and what a, an amazing feeling to be fulfilled when you do that because you never know when when that day comes and for me, it's because I've seen that I'm more in tune with that and I'm okay talking about that because I've experienced it and I speak openly about it and it's uncomfortable for people and I do speak on a deeper level in terms of death and like what I've experienced. But that's because I have seen people take their last breaths. Five, I think it was like, um, it was, no, it was the f- three days after my, I buried my mother. I get back to Cleethorpes, I get to my house, there's an helicopter in the sky and I look to my left, there's a BMW all smashed in, blood everywhere. And I look 20 yards further on, there's school kids around this little girl, 11 year old. And this is just after I've buried my mother and I get back to my house and I've just literally caught, caught the moment. And the helicopter's trying to land in the street, but there's no paramedics there yet. So I go over to a little girl. She's bleeding out of one ear and she's taking her last breath. There's no, nothing more important than breath. You're born with breath. It's the first thing that you're born with and the last thing to leave you. When you've experienced things like that in life, it makes you live life completely different with intention. And for me, that's what scares me the most is dying with my tank still on full, you know? Like I want to go out all in on empty and, and not only that raise the bar for my children. I always say to people in schools, you're going to be where you're sat today. Your future children or grandchildren could be sat where you are. How do you want to be remembered and what kind of bar you raising and setting the standard for so they can reach. If there's no bar, you can't rise to low expectation. So in my family, I have a duty as a father now to raise that bar and say, do you know what? Like when I'm gone, those principles, those values, that bar is still there to be reached. And once you reach it, go and pay it forward. Mm. You know, but that bar's there to be, to be got, you know? I love it, man. I, I can hear the passion's oozing out of you. Um, mate, what an episode. Um, I, this is one I'm going to have to listen back to. And, 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 it's been a long time coming, honestly. Like, I'm so I, grateful to, mate, to get on the call. you the best the best episodes i had um well that's that's it with um tell us something that we may not necessarily know about you a guilty pleasure or habit of some degree 
<laughs> do you know what do you know what's funny you've put me on the spot but i had wow. something that come to me a few weeks ago and i was like wow somebody asked me that question now why it's in my head um guilty pleasure probably the hardest question of the night the last one yeah i'm just trying to give you and your listeners something good or funny to chew on um oh gosh is this now or is this just something that anything, no one knows man. about anything me? Anything you're feeling, anything you like, anything of oh. value, anything that's a bit embarrassing. We're, we're an open book. Yeah. Um, gosh. Um, I, I, I suck my thumb. Um, yeah? Have you, okay. seen the, have you seen the Ipswich goal that I is scored? Is that your celebration? The celebration with the thumb, something okay. that... I can, you know, it's a boring answer, um, but yeah, sometimes I suck my thumb, and I, I suck my thumb from a very young age. But um, is it a guilty pleasure? No, I'm really, uh, I'll do it in public. But uh, well, it's a yeah, something we didn't know about you. There's, you know, it's, we're yeah, an open so, book. We want to know all. Uh, we want to cover all bases. I need comfort too. <laughs> yeah, you suck your thumb. <laughs> So to wrap up, and it's something that I always ask at the end of the ep- each episode, is we've got a Spotify playlist, yeah. and I ask the guests to give us a fire-up track and a chill-out track. So something that you're going to put your trainers on and go for a run, what would that track be? And something that maybe Sunday night, like perfect right now, that you might put on to just you know chill out, take five. Any yeah. songs that spring to mind? Um, Love Generation. I'm going to make a note of these because I'm going to go straight on the, on the uh, playlist. So Love Generation. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. yeah, I love that tune. And sometimes I use that on the, on the front end of my presentations. Um, yeah. I don't know if you need the artist, but uh, yeah. I think yeah. I know. That will come up. It's quite a popular one. I know the one, the one you mean. It's like the guitar one. Yeah. Um, it, it's, like the, it's like the reggae. Um, yeah. Yeah, the reggae track. You know what I mean. Um, yeah, I and then I'm just trying to think. Um, so you want a mellow one now, a chilled one? Yeah, something that you know listeners can wind down to. Um, yeah, up. so I'd say J.P. Cooper. Okay. Uh, I'll get the song up. I don't know off the top of my head, but yeah, drop me drop me a WhatsApp, but it will be featuring on the uh, on the playlist. Yeah, sure. Listeners yeah. will just love J.P. Cooper. He's doing amazing things like. Yeah. Follow him on social media. He's just doing lives. He's saying first when he when he checks in, he's like, you know, I don't care if I make any mistakes. This is no take. This is just live. You know, he's real and Plugs. yeah, just love JP Cooper. Sick, nice one, man. Okay, no, it's, so, it's, it's an honor, mate. Honestly, to uh, to share with you and so you know, it's been a long time coming, and hopefully uh, we can do this where roles reverse, you know, and I can get to know you more and, a de- and your audience, obviously on a deeper level. I'd love to do that. I'd love to be on the other side of the mic. Uh, anytime, really? just let me know. Yeah. Uh, nice. Thank you so much for coming on. And I hope I wish you safe and well during the remainder of this period and your family and, um, may all the best for the future and all the coaching stuff. How can we find out a little bit more about where to find out more about you, your coaching, the socials? I'll link them all, but just give us a shout out now. Yeah, brilliant. So yeah, um, my website, www.nathanarnoldcoaching.com. Um, on Instagram, uh, obviously you'll put the links in Facebook. 
and Twitter too. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm not quite sure uh, how to work that yet. Like my profile's not very good on there, but yeah, all those avenues. Um, and yeah, just I'm always active. And like I say, it's, um, I, I, I try not to be obsessive with putting content out there, but I think it's really important to just drip feed content out there that maybe someone needs to hear you know and um and yeah this is this is a lifestyle for me and uh I, I love you know i love using those kind of platforms to spread the message so yeah any any of those avenues people can find me on keep spreading the love man yeah nice one cheers mate. nice one tom take care bye